First and foremost, I want to thank the Patreons. Those people who are supporting the show with a monthly donation. Now, Patreon is a membership platform where you can support creators like me with a monthly subscription of as little as $2 a month. So if you go to patreon.com backslash the humanity archive, you can support the creation of this podcast. And it's also a way to say, Jermaine, I support your work. I support your mission to tell the stories of the historically unheard. So that's patreon.com backslash the humanity archive. And not only that, I'm going to give you even more value because I release anywhere from one to four additional podcast episodes per month there. So go check it out. Patreon.com backslash the humanity archive. Also, if you're listening on Apple or any other platform that allows reviews, make sure you write a review. Sharing is caring. And by reviewing, you let others know about this best kept secret in history podcasting and they'll discover the show and our community will grow. And finally, I want to tell you about a new podcast I think everyone needs to hear. It's called Be Anti-Racist, hosted by the esteemed Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. On the show, Dr. Kendi discusses policies and practices that have sustained injustice in our society and how we can dismantle racism to build a just and equitable world. Alongside guests like Julian Castro, Jamel Hill, Don Lemon, Heather C. McGee, and Mariam Kaba, Dr. Kendi ties the past to the present, inviting listeners to consider what an anti-racist future might look like. An anti-racist future depends on all of our actions, and Be Anti-Racist will help us understand precisely how to build one. Listen to Be Anti-Racist wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get into the story of Japanese internment. It was October 25th, 1944. Freezing rain beat the ground somewhere around Belmont, France. And it was here that we find the 26-year-old Private Fred Meru Yamamoto. And Fred isn't in France visiting because of the Eiffel Tower or the Louvre or because of the picturesque views of the foothills. He is there fighting in the U.S. military in the muddy, bloody trenches, wrestling with the brutal and bitter bleakness of war. He is fighting for America in the global conflict known as World War II. Now, we might ask, how did Fred get here? It must have seemed like yesterday to him when he was in his hometown of Palo Alto, California. Just a few years earlier, he was fresh out of the college dormitory and working on a rice farm. Before pursuing enemies in war, he was pursuing a girl in love. Bringing freshly picked bouquets of flowers to his girlfriend, Machiko Yamada. But his life along with the lives of over 100,000 Japanese in America, would all change after December 7, 1941. On this day, a Japanese fleet bombed the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor. Japan has declared war, Fred wrote in his diary. She has bombed Pearl Harbor, Philippines, Guam. What a mess, unquote. And we are going to jump a bit 
here in a flash forward back to Fred at war. He was there in France as part of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, a segregated Japanese-American unit. And I think about what does segregation mean when it comes to war? Well, it means the Japanese were good enough to fight, bleed and die for America. But due to their race, they were not good enough to fight alongside, eat, sleep or otherwise associate closely with their fellow white Americans. It's almost as if they weren't really sent to the war as Americans. They were sent as cannon fodder. But pushing past all this, they are a group that's remembered for its bravery and its valor. But when I think about this history, when I think about history in general, I often think that there is so much more to history than war. And there's so much more to history than xenophobia. There's so much more to history than empire. Yet so much of history has been shaped by war. And so much of history has been shaped by xenophobia. And so much of history has been shaped by empire. That's all going to feature very heavily in this story. But despite the odds, despite the racism, the 440 seconds actions distinguished them as one of the most decorated units for its size and length of service in the history of the U.S. military. Maybe it was because of their belief in America. Fred Yamamoto said this because faith to me is a positive thing. I'm putting all my blue chips on the USA. In short, I volunteered. I'm betting on America and I'm not going to sit back and let someone else do the fighting for me. Unquote. Fred Yamamoto joined the U.S. military despite the fact that he and his family were in prison by the U.S. behind barbed wire fences for being Japanese or of Japanese descent. Fred Yamamoto still enlisted in the United States Army when it was determined that Japanese men born as citizens could enlist and be drafted. 18,000 other Japanese Americans decided the same. And when I think about how Fred and his family were in prison, I think about how so few in the U.S. know much of anything about the internment of Japanese Americans. How many know that they weren't called internment camps in the past? They were called concentration camps. How many people know that after the attack on Pearl Harbor, racism and political expediency came together in the form of a policy to round up Japanese Americans and place them in prisons? Men, women, children, 120,313 Japanese Americans or people of Japanese descent to be exact. So many of which were wrongfully suspected of being either active or potential collaborators with the Japanese empire. Most lost their homes. They lost their jobs. They forfeited their businesses. They had to abandon financial security, deal with the disrupted family stability. They were moved rapidly to isolated areas with harsh, unfamiliar climates. Then imagine being told by government officials that this is all being done to protect you and your family. And then you're placed in these camps fenced in with barbed wire and you look up at the watchtower and you notice they have guns on them. But those guns aren't aimed at the outside. They're aimed at you. But still, Fred Yamamoto put all its blue chips on the United States. But that was Fred, eager to be of service, willing to go for broke, as was his regiment's slogan. 
So when we flash back, we see Fred fighting in the war against Germans in France. And when the chance comes up to go searching for a lost battalion of soldiers from Texas and get them rations and ammunition, what does Fred do? Well, he immediately signs up. Then on Saturday, October 28, 1944, Fred's K Company Battalion pushed up against German mortar fire and automatic weapons in an attempt to save the Texans. The odds were not in their favor. You see, the forest gave excellent cover to the enemy. Fred's friend and comrade, Kenneth K. Anada, said, quote, We were only about 200 yards from where we started when a deadly artillery barrage came through the forest. Lighting up brightly the whole area with a thunderous noise and nearly wiped out the entire ration detail. Only four men survived. Fred wasn't one of them. Unquote. His battalion did end up rescuing the Texas regiment. Fred just wasn't there to see it. He was given a silver star after his death. But silver stars don't bring soldiers back from the dead. Private first class. Fred Yamamoto, Japanese-American citizen, member of the United States Army. Remember his bravery and gallantry while serving as part of a selfless group of young men who saved a lost battalion near the Fontaine, France. Now, the story of Fred Yamamoto is very important to this internment story, not only because he and his family had been placed in those desolate U.S. prison camps. No, not only for that reason, but no, before I get into that, I have a question for you. Do you think Fred, a young man who was wronged by the United States and still loyal to the United States, someone who fought, bled and died for his country, do you think he is worthy of having a high school named after him? in his hometown of Palo Alto, California. Well, it just so happened that a middle school was changing its name in 2018 and some worthy candidates came up for the name of the school like Fred Yamamoto. But it so happened since Yamamoto is a common Japanese name, the man who ordered the bombing on Pearl Harbor was also named Yamamoto. It's Roku Yamamoto. Fred was taken out of the running to have the school named in his honor because of the name association. As one journalist close to the story, Dave Price said, quote, it's funny we don't confuse George Washington with Booker T. Washington or Andrew Jackson with Michael Jackson. So why is it that y'all are suddenly stumped when it comes to telling the difference between a decorated American veteran and a foreign war criminal? The answer clearly lies at the nexus of racism, nationalism, and xenophobia, unquote. And that is the nexus of our story here. However, 120,000 Japanese, most of whom were American citizens, many of whom were children, were singled out, racially profiled, constitutionally violated, in a fit of nationalism and xenophobia. I want to welcome you to the Humanity Archive podcast. I am your gracious host, Jermaine Fowler. And today I have a story of history that you've probably never heard before. But even if you have, you've never heard it in the way that I'm going to tell it. Today, I am telling the story of Japanese internment. And this is a story of imprisonment and of fear. 
This is a story of war and of constitutional rights, a story of loyalty, a story of prejudice and racism and discrimination, a story of citizenship, a story of naturalization, a story of liberty, remembrance and of restitution and of reparations. This is the story of Japanese internment. This is the Humanity Archive podcast. Let's get into it. How many of you ever started reading a book from the middle? Like if a book you're about to read is 400 pages and you started at about page 200. Or maybe not even the middle. Maybe you start on page 6 or 98 or page 292. Then as you read, you realize the book isn't even finished being written yet. Well, that's history for you, isn't it? One of the questions that always comes up for me when studying a story like this is, Where do you begin? How do I start the story of Japanese internment at a place that provides you with enough context to set the story up so you fully understand it? Well, I'm going to start this book and the more recent past to explain how over 100,000 Japanese Americans were forced from their homes and imprisoned in 1942. During this time, President Franklin D. Roosevelt was willing to commit civil and human rights violations in what he claimed was the name of war necessity. Don't forget this was right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the U.S. getting into World War II. But by 1981, the U.S. government was singing a different song. They didn't think the whole internment thing was justified. They willfully admitted that the incarceration of Japanese Americans was, quote, not justified by military necessity and the decisions which followed from it. We're not driven by analysis of military conditions. The broad historical causes which shaped the decisions were race prejudice, war hysteria, and failure of political leadership. A grave injustice was done to the American citizens and resident aliens of Japanese ancestry who, without individual review or any bait of evidence against them, were excluded, removed, and detained by the United States during World War II, unquote. Acknowledgement often takes a while, doesn't it? Some 39 years for the U.S. to really begin to reconcile with the Japanese to admit to wrongdoing. And in Germany, they have a word, and I'm not going to attempt to pronounce this. I would mutilate it. It starts with a V and ends with a G. It's like Vergagenheit. Bewaltsigung. Sure, I tore that one up. But just look up the German word, which means to struggle or to overcome the negatives of the past or working through the past. 
And it's this process, right, where you work through the collective trauma of a nation's collective wrongdoing. You continually deal with it and have open dialogue and public conversation about it. You try to come to a point of reconciliation, redemption, reparations, repairing. That's the essence of the word trying to come to some terms with the human rights violations. It's a never ending process. And the U.S. kind of started this process in 1981 with the Japanese and then tucked its head back in the sand. Other groups of people in America whose rights have been violated barely got a look. Now, if we think about the conditions the Japanese found themselves in, we can gain some understanding as to why they waited so long for justice. The Japanese found themselves in a long line of people who were considered racially inferior in America. The ruling class of white Americans despised black people, slave or free. They looked at the Native Americans as uncivilized savages. They found themselves running up against some of the same hatred that the Hispanics of the Southwest had suffered. The Japanese found themselves as part of the same resentment that plagued the Chinese who had come to America as part of the first wave of immigrants from Asia in the 1840s as part of the gold rush. It is important to zoom in on the hatred of the Chinese. And I know Asia is not a monolith, but discrimination against the Chinese serves as an important backdrop and indicator and barometer of how the Japanese were going to be treated. Apparently, people from Asia could never be American enough during this time because in 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, and in 1892, it was made permanent. It barred the immigration of Chinese laborers. It lasted 61 years until 1943. And even after that, no more than a handful were allowed over. It was the first federal law to discriminate against any immigrant group. And again, there is this underlying idea of Asians as racially inferior and unfit to be part of American society. They face blatant and overt prejudice, institutionally sanctioned racism, were constantly terrorized, stolen from, and sometimes murdered. And we must remember that Japan was on its way to becoming a world superpower at this point. They handed a whipping to Russia in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 1905. They were the most powerful nation in Asia, so they had more influence on American politics and treatment of their people in America. So even though America saw them as racially inferior, power respects power. So Japanese immigrants were offered some protections for a while. A little more so than other marginalized groups, but the underlying sentiment would show how they were going to be treated in the long term. One commentator said, quote, the Japanese are starting the same tide of immigration, which we had checked 20 years ago. The Chinese and Japanese are not bona fide citizens. They are not the stuff of which American citizens can be made. Personally, we have nothing against the Japanese, but as they will not assimilate with us and their social life is so different from ours, let them keep a respectful distance. Unquote. Take note when he says, not the stuff which American citizens can be made. He meant that they weren't white. 
Let's read between the lines. Now, American historian Hubert Howe Bancroft put it more harshly in his book, History of California in 1890. And this is a professional historian of the time. Remember this, a professional historian. This is a man trusted as an objective authority in history. He said, quote, these people were truly in every sense aliens. The color of their skins, the repulsiveness of their features, their undersize of figure, their incomprehensible language, strange customs, and heathen religion conspired to set them apart, unquote. And when we think about assimilation in America, this isn't just some innocent idea fitting in. No, we are talking about who gets to be an American what are the criteria? Well, if you're white and Anglo-Saxon, you have historically had a big leg up over everyone else to get in the club, haven't you? Kind of born into the American club. Come on in. Then from there, the more foreign you are or the darker you are or the less Protestant you are, it gets more and more difficult to join the club. And you'll have those who argue and say race has nothing to do with it. People who will say we welcome immigrants as full members in the American family, if they just speak English, work hard and have good morals and take pride in their American identity. But if that was the case, we'd have a lot more people to be considered American and not hyphenated Americans. Now, wouldn't we? If you really think about it, other than the native peoples of America, we're all hybrids with forefathers and foremothers from somewhere else. So when we get into the humanity stories of internment and the Japanese struggle to find an American identity, one of the stories I read was about Yoshiku Uchida, a second generation immigrant. Second generation immigrants were referred to as Issei. They were birthright citizens while their parents were Nisei, legally prevented from becoming U.S. citizens. There goes that discrimination again. And she tells a harrowing story of her and her family's imprisonment in a Nevada concentration camp during World War II. And in her book, she talks about the longing and the struggle to assimilate as a child saying this, quote, A lot more of me was Japanese than I realized, whether I liked it or not. I was born in California, recited the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag each morning at school, and loved my country as much as any other American, maybe even more. Still, there was a part of me that was Japanese simply because Mama and Papa had passed on to me so much of their own Japanese spirit and soul, their own values of loyalty, honor, self-discipline, love and respect for one's parents, teachers and superiors were all very much a part of me. There was also my name, which teachers couldn't seem to pronounce properly, even when I shortened my first name to Yoshi. And there was my Japanese face, which closed more and more doors to me as I grew older. How wonderful would it be, I used to think, if I had blonde hair and blue eyes, or a name like Marianne Brown or Betty Johnson, unquote. Very sad psychological implications there, wanting to fit in, wanting to look like, be like, act like those who are considered part of the club made even sadder when you realize that so many groups of people wanted to fit in so bad that they relinquished and gave up their own identity to try to fit in only to not be accepted 
She goes on, but you see there is real humanity and real human struggle and anxiety around assimilation. It isn't just a word because what happens when you try so hard to assimilate and blend into the dominant culture, blend into their beliefs and their values and traditions, and it's still not good enough because you don't look like them. Or even more, what if you don't want to fully blend? What if you want to retain some of your previous identity? So I think about Yoshiko Uchida and her inner struggle. Now, in a minute, I'm going to get into more of the political opinions and legal ramifications of internment, but never lose sight of her humanity. I believe that if history is to be used as a bridge and as a force that connects and binds us together, then we have to shift from the political to the personal. To look at the lives lived, the hopes, the dreams, the fears, the anxieties and the complexities within the lives of others who are not like us. And in the case of Yoshiko and so many others, they wanted nothing more than to be American, trying through what might be called super patriotism at times to prove that they were indeed American, buying into this belief that if they just appreciate the wonderful advantages of America, believe in the institutions and ideas of America, believe that it is just individuals who discriminate and that it is not representative of the American people, believe if they just work hard and prove themselves worthy of fair treatment that they would receive fair treatment like so many other marginalized groups in U.S. history, they thought this super patriotism would protect them. But the Japanese would soon find themselves behind barbed wire and they would see that this was not the case. Now, I'm not going to get too much into World War II in its entirety, only to say that the main powers in the axis of whom the United States would be fighting was an alliance between Germany, Italy and Japan. Very important to the story here. And we are going to talk about this war as it was brewing 20 years before Pearl Harbor even occurred. Political leaders were predicting a war between the U.S. and Japan. The U.S. had long treated the Japanese as subordinated, going way back to years earlier where they had forced Japan to open up their borders. Japan was closed off to foreign trade for a while, and the U.S. came over with its imperialist chest poked out and said, "Uh, we have uh, 20 warships here. You're going to open up those borders and trade with us, whether you want to or not. Vladimir Lenin, observing the situation years earlier than Pearl Harbor was quoted as saying, quote, war is brewing between Japan and America. They cannot live in peace on the shores of the Pacific, although those shores are 3,000 verses apart, unquote. Versts is a Russian measure of linear distance, equivalent to about two-thirds of a mile. If you didn't know, I didn't, so I just wanted to share that information with you. But there are accounts of the Japanese during the time leading up to war who were dreading the war, thinking they had more chance of being killed by America than fighting for America, even though many of them were American citizens. There's so many writings about the Japanese people in America fearing this catastrophic event and wondering what side America was going to place them on. And then the war does break out. Pearl Harbor does happen. Now, think about how the overall sentiment towards the Japanese was. We already set up the backstory. America was this legally racist and xenophobic nation. Not everyone, but hey, there were laws on the books, so that's representative of the nation. 
Japanese Americans were so often reduced in their humanity to terms like Japs and yellow vermin. During this time, there's propaganda in art and media and literature perpetuating the grossest stereotypes about Japanese people. Then Pearl Harbor happened. And with Pearl Harbor, there's this feeling that, hey, this will never happen to us. We're in America. So most people think of Pearl Harbor as this moment that galvanized Americans to come together in the moment we got into World War II, the war we said we would never get into. There's always this point of disbelief when talking about Pearl Harbor too, like how could this nation so great, a nation so strong, a nation so powerful be so unprepared as to be attacked on December 7th, 1941 by Japan. And war is always ugly and horrifying and brutal. And we have to talk about this and put this in context because Pearl Harbor visited some terrifying levels of death and destruction on America. Usually we were the ones who were the aggressor, the imperialist who used our muscle to sit at the head of the international dinner table. When we talk about America as a superpower, remember, we are largely talking about a military superpower. We were not used to someone striking the first blow on us, but they did. And I'm going to read this agonizing account of what happened at Pearl Harbor. We can't help but also feel the pain of war and just the agony of death of the American servicemen. When we hear the firsthand account of Donald Stratton, an American who survived the attack on the USS Arizona that day. And he says, quote, Around 6.30 a.m. in open water, about 230 miles north of Oahu, Hawaii, Japanese carriers launched 183 planes from their decks. The first wave of planes included 51 dive bombers, 40 torpedo bombers, 49 horizontal bombers, and 43 fighters. Chow call sounded, and I ate typical Sunday fare, coffee, powdered eggs with ketchup, fried Spam, and pancakes. The USS Arizona was one of 185 ships of the U.S. Pacific Fleet moored in Pearl Harbor that day. On Private Joseph Lockhart's radar screen, a blip was now 100 miles north of Oahu and closing. Lockhart's superior officer told him that a squadron of American planes was arriving at Pearl Harbor that morning and the blip had to be them. Captain Mitsuo Fuchida led the first wave of Japanese planes along the island's north shore. Nine minutes later, his radio men signaled for the attack on Pearl Harbor to begin. Japanese Zeros attacked aircraft hangars and buildings on the airstrip. Enemy planes struck the airstrip as Fuchida radioed broadband Tora Tora Tora, which meant lightning attack and alerted his superiors that a surprise attack had been achieved. I stepped into the sunshine on the forecastle deck. I heard the drone of aircraft engines and bombs exploding off Fort Island. Several of us ran to the bow to see planes on the runway bursting into flames and the water tower toppling over. The men pointed overhead, craning my neck. I recognized the red meatballs on the silver wings of the planes doing the bombing. Japanese zeros emblazoned with the nation's rising sun disk. They circled in figure eights like birds of prey. I looked over my shoulder at the harbor, which was in chaos. A zero bore down, splintering our deck. It flew so low, I could see the pilot taunting me with the smirk in a wave. The air defense alarm sounded, followed by general quarters. Attention, attention, man your battle stations. This is no drill. This is no drill. The deck was in a frenzy of sailors. 
We took so many hits, and not just our ship. From a hatch, I watched Japanese planes circling before coming straight down battleship roll. I observed Tennessee and West Virginia take hits. I witnessed the Oklahoma lurch to one side, then roll over and sink. I saw a fireball in the dry dock where the Pennsylvania was. The entire fleet was being destroyed before my eyes. Great billows of black smoke were eating up the blue sky. Torpedoes slammed against our hull, spewing geysers of water. Ships were taking on water, listing, capsizing. From those ruptured ships spilled oil that congealed when it hit the water, caught fire. It seemed the whole harbor was in flames, the hellish sight of blacks and reds and yellows devouring everything, the sulfurous smell of burning fuel, the acrid smell of exploding gunpowder, and the noise it was deafening. One explosion followed another, and after each, you could hear twisted metal writhing, letting out the most wretched sound as if it were in agonizing pain. As soon as one dive bomber dropped its torpedo, it pulled away while another plane swooped down to strafe us. Machine gun bullets ricocheted off metal, the screams of our men, their bodies engulfed in flames. Unquote. It was the Greek philosopher Plato who said only the dead have seen the end of war. So now America saw what it was like to be attacked. America felt what it was like to be attacked. So now America was at war with Japan. Italy and Germany, and we can see the injustice against the Japanese American citizens play out legally after this. We can begin to see how differently they were going to be treated than German American and Italian American citizens and aliens whose mother countries were part of the Axis. They weren't treated the same. Now, to be sure, the Italians especially faced ethnic discrimination along with the Japanese. The cultural and social discrimination and prejudice was real. They were often called derogatory slang terms as well and racially discriminated against as well, like Guinea, which stands for the Guinea African coast, implying Italians are not white. There's this slur Goomba. It's Italian word for Godfather, implying this false stereotype that all Italians have mafia connections. There's other words, too. So you get that. But when we talk about the legal discrimination and policies put in place against the Japanese, that is where we really start to see the forms of racism that don't apply the same. Unlike the Japanese, German and Italian immigrants had not been prohibited from becoming naturalized United States citizens. And many of them did become naturalized United States citizens. A total of 11,507 people of German ancestry were interned during the war out of a population of 1,237,000 German-born people in the U.S. Compare that with 110 to 120,000 Japanese. About 80% of the Japanese people who lived in the continental United States were forced to leave their homes. More than three out of every five of these people were born in the United States and were United States citizens. The Germans or Italians, even though they were part of the Axis and they were fighting America too, they were not forced to endure a comprehensive program of removal followed by incarceration in prison camps like the Japanese. So yes, a fraction of them were interned and their stories need to be heard, should be heard, should always identify with the suffering of others, no matter what race 
what gender, what background, what religion. But their experience was not quite like the Japanese. Now, I just want to mention that as part of my research, I read a book called In Defense of Internment. Yes, there is a book called In Defense of Internment. And the subtitle is The Case for the Racial Profiling that Happened in World War II and the War on Terror. And even though the book takes an extreme view, I wanted to see what an alternative viewpoint was. So I kept an open mind that my synopsis is that this is one of those books that is clearly defending America's actions. And the title of the book is kind of clickbait because in a way the author argues that the government was right to detain ethnic Japanese people that were suspected of disloyalty. But she fails to explain how this justifies the internment of almost all ethnic Japanese Americans and resident aliens, so many of whom were, again, American citizens. Now, there are real fears that the Japanese citizens and German and Italians on the coast were so close to our naval bases and dams and infrastructure that they could report back to their home countries. There were real fears of sabotage and espionage. But military intelligence had eyes on the Japanese community. And in one report, they said they suspect at least 90 percent of the Japanese population was loyal to the United States. And just to be clear, there were white Americans sympathetic to the Japanese plight who tried to be helpful. But this wasn't enough. Politicians and community leaders and citizens wanted to know after Pearl Harbor. And I'm quoting from an actual Article here, it says, what are we going to do about all these Japs running around loose? Unquote. Japanese immigrants in America were already interned in the court of public opinion before they were interned by the military. And since most Japanese lived on the coast, many tried to get ahead of internment and move inland because the military strategically wanted them away from the coast. But there was fear of retaliation. Many of them were beaten and intimidated by white town residents and mobs when they tried to move further inland. You can look up pictures of white store owners smiling in front of their stores with signs saying we don't serve Japs here. So they couldn't buy gasoline or other travel necessities. Imagine pulling up to a gas station and there's a sign saying we don't serve you. We serve other people. We just don't serve your people. And then let's just imagine that this is the only gas station within 100 miles. What are you going to do? And then you have to think about the fact that the government froze the bank accounts of so many Japanese people in America. Another point I want to make is that if America would have only detained the small number of Japanese considered disloyal or who were deemed security threats and they did so through some form of due process, well, I wouldn't be telling this story. Michi Weglin in the book Years of Infamy points this out. He says, quote, most of the 110 persons removed for reasons of national security were school age children, infants and young adults, not a voting age, unquote. So at this point in the story, we get to the part where President Roosevelt signs off on Executive Order 9066. This order authorized the evacuation of all persons deemed a threat to national security from the West Coast two relocation centers further inland and everything in the story so far has been building to this. The years of anti-Asian discrimination, the laws like Ozawa versus the United States upholding the government's right to deny U.S. citizenship to Japanese immigrants. The housing discrimination, all of it. Notices were placed on telephone poles and in store windows telling people when and where to report to be imprisoned. These are people who built their farmlands and fruit orchards in America, 
fished and operated small businesses in America. They had churches and schools and lives they literally had to leave behind. They all built in America in an attempt to be American citizens. The government told them they could bring only what they could carry. They had to supply their own bedding, knives, bowls, spoons, and personal effects. No pets were allowed. We know how much people love their pets. And before I get into the experience of the prison camps, I just want to share two views on the internment situation just so you can see how people thought about it and what was going to happen. Two views. One was from Milton Eisenhower, first director of the War Location Authority. He defended internment when he said this, quote, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our West Coast became a potential combat zone. Living in that zone were more than 100,000 persons of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of them American citizens, one-third aliens. We knew that some among them were potentially dangerous, but no one knew what would happen among this concentrated population if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. This picture tells how the mass migration was accomplished. Neither the Army nor the War Relocation Authority relished the idea of taking men, women, and children from their homes, their shops, and their farms. So the military and civilian agencies alike determined to do the job as a democracy should, with real consideration for the people involved. First, attention was given to the problems of sabotage and espionage. Now, here at San Francisco, for example, convoys were being made up within sight of possible Axis agents. In nearby San Pedro, houses and hotels occupied almost exclusively by Japanese were within a stone throw of our naval bases, shipyards, and oil wells. Japanese fishermen had every opportunity to watch the movement of our ships. Japanese farmers were living close to vital aircraft plants. So as a first step, all Japanese were required to move from critical areas such as these. But of course, this limited evacuation was a solution to only part of the problem. The larger problem, the uncertainty of what would happen among these people in case of Japanese invasion still remained. That is why the commanding general of Western Defense Command determined that all Japanese within the coastal areas should move inland. That is the justification for imprisonment. But on the other hand, in an interview with a older Nisei, we don't know his name. It's lost to history. It's not recorded. And that just goes to contribute to this untold story, right, of the people who are trying to plead their case because people didn't even think they were important to write their names down. Maybe they didn't want to say their names, but we're going to take his account into full consideration in this telling of the story of the Japanese experience. He says, quote, if this country doesn't want me, they can throw me out. What do they know about loyalty? I'm as loyal as anyone in this country. Maybe I'm as loyal as President Roosevelt. What business did they have asking me a question like that? I was born in Hawaii. I worked most of my life on the West Coast. I have never been to Japan. We would have done anything to show our loyalty. All we wanted to do was to be left alone on the coast. My wife and I lost 10000 in that evacuation. She had a beauty parlor and had to give that up. I had a good position working as a gardener and was taken away from that. We had a little home and that's gone now. What kind of Americanism do you call that? 
That's not democracy. That's not the American way. Taking everything away from people. Where are the Germans? Where are the Italians? Did they ask them questions about loyalty? Nobody had to ask us about our loyalty when we lived on the coast. You didn't find us relieved. We were first when there was any civic drive. We were first with the money for the Red Cross and the community chest or whatever it was. Why didn't that kind of loyalty count? Now they're trying to push us to the east. It's always further inland, further inland. I say to hell with it. Either they let me go to the coast and prove my loyalty there, or they can do with me what they want. If they don't want me in this country, they can throw me out. Evacuation was a mistake. There was no need for it. The government knows this. Why don't they have enough courage to come out and say so? So that these people won't be pushed around. I've tried to cooperate. Last year, I went out on furlough and worked on the best fields in Idaho. There was a contract which said we would be brought back here at the end of the work. Instead, we just sat there. We had to spend our own money. The farmers won't do anything for you. They treat you all right while you're working hard for them. But as soon as your time is up, you can starve. When I got back to Camp Manzanar, nearly all my money I had earned was gone. Unquote. Now, when you hear this story, it's a reminder that many of the Japanese in prison were hired out on local farms to help produce the war surplus. They were hired out to help the same military that imprisoned them, producing sugar or other crops. The old Issei was referring to this when he said he had to work and essentially was left with no wages. They were paid a salary, but it was a very meager salary and an unfair salary. And this is the reason I wanted to juxtapose these two examples, because to me, the older Nisei's testimony placed up next to Eisenhower's raises the fundamental question. Should freedom be sacrificed in the name of national security? And if so, what happens when the national security threat is exaggerated? What happens if it's partially fueled by racism? Then there are those who would defend the United States because, yes, a lot of the military officials said they took no pleasure in sending these Japanese families to these prisons. But just because you take no pleasure in uprooting people from their lives and existence, you still uprooted them from their lives and existence. Now, let's talk about the internment experience through the lens and eyes of those at the time. If you are going to get one book on internment, I would highly recommend the book Only What They Could Carry because it has a big compilation of stories from the Japanese people themselves. And in the beginning chapters, it says, quote, overnight, the evacuation reduced individual and family names to numbers on tags. Instructions by the army explicitly ordered the Japanese to assemble voluntarily for mass evacuation, bargain on a given date and time with no more than what could be carried by hand. In the few days that the evacuees had to prepare for evacuation, bargain hunters descended onto the evicted, taking what they could for pittance. In some instances, trustworthy neighbors stored and cared for the belongings, homes, and properties of the evicted Japanese, but, but the pilfering and vandalism often began before the evacuees had left their homes. With it, nearly a lifetime of perseverance and struggle disappeared overnight, unquote. The Japanese people dealt with a great deal of uncertainty. I try to think about what I do when I deal with uncertainty and things out of my control. I try to shift my attention. I try to focus on solvable worries, take action on those aspects of the problem that I can control. But what exactly could those Japanese being shipped off to these prisons control? 
I'm sure there were so many who fell into despair. I read one story about a 70 acre fruit ranch owned by a M. Miyamoto once yielded plums and it yielded peaches and pears and it was all abandoned. Imagine leaving all that behind to be shoved into a train or on a bus to some unknown destination. In a very short poem by the poet Shizu Iwatsuki, she expresses the pain and saddening brevity. She says, quote, round it up in the sweltering yard, unable to endure any longer, standing in line, some collapse, unquote. Now, when we think about what's called relocation, I would define it differently and say forced removal. We had to recognize that the Japanese had to be settled twice, once at the assembly centers. And then after a few weeks, up to a few months after being processed, they were moved to concentration camps, which were run by a newly created federal agency, the War Relocation Authority. And these were located in desolate deserts and swamplands throughout the West and in Arkansas. These relocation centers were surrounded by barbed wire and guard towers and floodlights and armed guards. And they were still being completed when the first inmates began to arrive. All around the camps was dust, which turned to mud in the rain. A California site survey of the National Park Service described the camps this way. It said, quote, the camp interiors were arranged like prisoner of war camps or overseas military camps and were completely unsuited for family living. Barracks were divided into blocks, and each block had a central mess hall, latrine, showers, wash basins, and laundry tubs. Toilets, showers, and bedrooms were unpartitioned. There was no water or plumbing in the living quarters, and anyone going to the laboratory at night, often through mud or snow, was followed by a searchlight. Eight-person families in 20-by-20-foot rooms, six-person families in 12-by-20-foot rooms, and four-person families in 8-by-20-foot rooms. Small families or single persons shared units with strangers. Privacy was non-existent. Unquote. Aiko Yoshinaga was a senior at Los Angeles High School when she was sent off to Manzanar in California, which was the site of 10 American concentration camps. She said, quote, The only thing that was in the apartments when we got there were army metal beds with the springs on it and a pot-bellied stove in the middle of the room. That was the only thing. No chest of drawers, no nothing, no curtains on the windows. It was the barest of the bare. And just seeing the living arrangement was, it was a real bummer thinking that, wow, this room has one light bulb and there were seven of us in one small room. It was not very comfortable for newlyweds, especially or a family to live that close, not have privacy, which is the thing. I think liberty and privacy is what I miss the most, unquote. Now, we've talked about how the treatment of the Japanese was not befitting of an American citizen protected under the Constitution. But for me, what adds so much weight to that is the complexity of the stories and experiences like Louise Agawa, who said sarcastically of her camp, Poston in Arizona. Poston would be a paradise if it weren't for the dust, heat and wind and insects. And it was not only insects flying around. Chinese pilots being trained at Arizona Army Air Force Base got their kicks by pretending to strafe the camps flying so low that the barracks shook. Our friend... From earlier, Yoshiko Chida said, quote, 
in its frenetic haste to construct this barrack city, the army had removed every growing thing and what had once been a peaceful lake bed was now churned up into one great mass of loose flour like sand. With each step, we sank two or three inches deep, sending up swirls of dust that crept into our eyes, mouths, noses, and lungs, unquote. The camp she was in housed 8,000 residents in one square mile, making it the fifth largest city in the state of Utah. The fifth largest city was a prison camp. Now, there was some semblance of normalcy in these camps with schools and libraries and newspapers and hospitals and community government. But this community government was just a way to delegate all the duties of keeping the camps running. And no one could make a wage over $19 per month, which is only like $300 per month in today's money. So it didn't matter if you were a doctor or a janitor, this is what you were going to make. Now, temperatures in some of these camps in the winter reach negative 30 degrees. No individual cooking facilities three times a day. Inmates lined up to receive cheap and starchy food and eat mess halls. And then there are the tragic internment stories you seldom hear about. Within one month of opening, Tanforin camp, three rapes and at least two attempted assaults occurred. In journals, there are warnings between friends about wolves who should be avoided if possible. There are several reports from multiple camps of girls being molested and men peeking in at women in the showers. These are the often silent stories of this type of history. In public spaces, imagine being in the latrines and in the streets between barracks and fearing being harassed and followed and threatened in this way. I think about the anxiety of daily life, this culture of silence for these women, and how many never said a word for fear of shame or dishonor or retaliation. Now we've talked about the super patriots and those who were loyal to America to the death. Enough so to go to war, even when America wasn't loyal to them, those who joined the military. But there were those in the camps who were loyal to Japan. Maybe they didn't start out that way. Maybe they said, forget America, you're not going to accept me. Well, I'm going to be more loyal to my motherland. Maybe all along they were saying, hey, I'm Japanese, right? I just live here. At any rate... On December 7th in 1942, there was a riot in Manzanar. There were some celebrating the Japanese victory at Pearl Harbor and some other Japanese tried to stop them. The rioters killed one and injured other American loyalists. The rioters were shot by the military police and several were injured. There's so many stories, so much pain, so much resilience and so much fortitude and so much complexity to this story in the face of these circumstances. Then there are those who gave in and gave up and faced life with the stress and PTSD of their experience and still do because there are still so many people with us from this period in time. Now I want to talk about the Japanese American resistance of what were called the no-no boys. The no-no boys received their name by answering no to two questions on a survey given to Japanese Americans forced into these camps. Question 27 on the survey said, are you willing to serve in the armed forces of the United States on combat duty wherever ordered? And then question number 28 said, will you swear unqualified allegiances to the United States of America and faithfully defend the United States from any 
and all attack by foreign or domestic forces and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the Japanese emperor or other foreign government power or organization. And you get this questionnaire locked up by the nation who says you aren't a citizen, really? Even if you are, it's saying, hey, will you pledge allegiance to us while we have you in prison? And then you think back like, wow, nobody thought this was inappropriate to ask them these questions. But these so-called no-no boys were outraged that the U.S. government demanded that they vow loyalty to this country after egregiously violating their civil liberties. So they refused to enlist in the armed forces. Frank Emmy, an internee at the Hart Mountain Camp in Wyoming, was one of them. Furious that his rights had been trampled, he and a half dozen other Hart Mountain internees formed the Fair Play Committee after receiving their draft notices and said, quote, we members of the FPC are not afraid to go to war. We're not afraid to risk our lives for our country. We would gladly sacrifice our lives to protect and uphold the principles and ideals of our country as set forth in the Constitution and Bill of Rights for its inviolability depends on the freedom, liberty, and justice and protection of all people, including Japanese, American, and all other minority groups. But have we been given such freedom, liberty, such justice, such protection? No. Unquote. For refusing to serve Emmy, his fellow FPC participants, and more than 300 internees at 10 camps were prosecuted. Emmy served 18 months in a federal penitentiary in Kansas. Most of the no-no boys faced three years in federal penitentiaries. They also faced a backlash in Japanese-American communities. For example, leaders of the Japanese-American Citizens League characterized draft resistors as disloyal cowards and blamed them for giving the American public the idea that Japanese-Americans were unpatriotic. And then after all this... In December of 1944, President Roosevelt rescinded Executive Order 9066 and the WRA began a six-month process of releasing internees, often to resettlement facilities. Started shutting down the camps in August of 1945. The war was over, but so few of the American Japanese were able to just pick back up and go back to their normal lives before the war without money, without property, with nothing so many of them had to start over. And the story is always nuanced is how they were treated. Some white people and other groups were charitable and patronizing to the Japanese. Others said, get back to Japan. In her writing, Legacy of Silence, Mitsui Yamada talked about how she never could talk about internment after internment was over. I mean, a lot of the Japanese people talked about it amongst themselves, but not outside of their own community. There is a certain stigma about saying you've been in jail for three years, even if you were wrongfully convicted. She found herself in Cincinnati at the American Friends Services Committee hostel, and she recalls a story where a fellow pedestrian caught her a dirty Jap and spat in her face. This was in 1943, just a few days after she had left her camp. This is the reception that she got in the streets. She brings up a profound point in her writing, too, when she says that when we talk about internment, we have to move beyond questions to simply ask what was it like? Because the assumption surrounding questions like this is always as long as the Japanese were treated decently, then there is nothing to gripe about. 
Edison Uno, a Nisei, who was 18 years old when he was released from his prison camp, said of the silence, quote, We were like the victims of rape. We felt shamed. We could not bear to speak of the assault. Unquote. But that wouldn't last. Emboldened and inspired by the black civil rights movement and the Vietnam War protests, the Japanese people started to ask about restitution and reparations and redress. The older Nisei generation embraced traditional values that encouraged them to put the past behind them, like the word gaman means, quote, to endure or persevere with dignity. They felt like it can't be undone or it can't be helped, even though their whole lives and careers and businesses were destroyed. They were hesitant to ask for redress, but the younger generation turned shame and silence into a movement for reparations. So a redress campaign was launched. The Japanese American community as a whole came together. They came together over a collective obligation to uphold American ideas. One historian said in 1988, a decade after the campaign began, over 40 years after the internment camps closed, President Ronald Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act, which offered a formal apology and paid $20,000 to each survivor. But most people agree this was largely symbolic. Of course, could never right the wrongs of Japanese imprisonment. But ultimately, the government admitted to wrongdoing. They pardoned people. They admitted wrongdoing and said that it was a mistake for the government to incarcerate Japanese Americans without trial during the war. And I think that this has caused some angst within other communities, because I know in the black community, for instance, black people have been calling for redress and reparations for a very long time over slavery. So I think that this could be used as an example, right? But then you have to go back to the words of those who were against these reparations, like one of the dissenting voices who didn't want to give the Japanese money said, quote, it is inappropriate that present day taxpayers should be held accountable for actions that occurred 40 years ago. Should we pay monetary redress for the abhorrent practice of slavery or the inhumane treatment of Indians 100 years ago? Well, if the history of slavery, Native American genocide, is still affecting the descendants of slavery, Native American genocide, negatively, statistically, economically, mentally, Maybe that's something we should look into. And I would say that the people who won't even consider it have a hard time looking at the humanity of these groups, just as the people did who perpetuated all of the injustices that got us into this situation in the first place. And just to end this powerful story on Japanese internment, I wanted to leave you with the words of a child. Because there were so many children behind bars and a lot of them wrote some very powerful and poignant poetry. I'm going to read just one of them. It goes like this, quote, Oh God, I pray that I may bear a cross to set my people free, that I may help to take goodwill across an understanding sea. Oh God, I pray that someday every race may stand on equal plane and prejudice will find no dwelling place in a peace that all may gain. Mary Matsuzawa. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this very painful, 
very eye-opening, very powerful podcast on Japanese internment. I'm very glad to bring it to you from my perspective. I very much encourage you to pick up any book you can by Japanese people, Japanese American citizens of this history. And that is my podcast. That is my message. I cannot wait to bring my next podcast to you. It's going to be a series. Very much looking forward to it. This one is going to be very near and dear to me, and I will be announcing that soon. So stay tuned. This is Jermaine Fowler with the Humanity Archive podcast, and I'll see you next time.